Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I want them to be with me and behold the glory I had with you before the foundations of the world. He wants us to be in heaven. That means it's a done deal. We will get there. That prayer will be answered. But in the meantime, he has something for us. If you are in Christ, you are salt and light. Now we've heard that term before. There are songs written about it. There are books written about it. Today we pick up in verse 13 of Matthew 5 and we learn exactly what it means. Let's join Pastor Sam in his message entitled that very thing, Salt and Light. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, picking up at verse 13, the title of our message, Salt and Light. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, salt and light. We read here in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just take us home when we come to faith in him? Wouldn't it be wonderful, amazing to, to shut your eyes, to pray, Lord Jesus, come into my life, be my Lord and Savior, I give you my life for now and forever, to open your eyes and to be in heaven in the presence of God. Man, if you've been a Christian for very long at all, no doubt you'd say, I would have preferred that. Because the Christian life is not an easier life than the life you lead outside of Christ. It is filled with the same trials and tribulations and problems and situations. But added to that, there's persecution and rejection and mocking and all sorts of things that we really didn't have to go through when we were just hanging with and being like everyone else. It's not an easy thing to walk with Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to represent Jesus, but it is what it means to be a Christian. And the only reason he's left us here is he wants us to be an influence in our society, in our generation. You see, ultimately, it is his wish that we reach heaven. Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I want them to be with me and behold the glory I had with you before the foundations of the world. He wants us to be in heaven. That means it's a done deal. We will get there. That prayer will be answered. But in the meantime, he has something for us. And he uses these two pictures, very common in that day, relatively easy to understand even in ours. And he talks about what we are in the world in which we're living, how we represent him. And he tells us, first of all, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say we could be or should be or he'd really appreciate if we give it a try. He just says, this is what you are. If you're in Christ, you are the salt of the earth. 
And he says, you are the light of the world. And we're going to look at seven things that that means to us and and our relationship to the world. And and then we're going to just look at what he has to say as far as where that takes place and how that takes place. Now, you need to know that first century, and, and that's when these things were written, no one would have wondered what Jesus was getting at when he said, you're the salt of the earth. Salt was used primarily in that day as a preservative force. It was all about preservation. And in fact, in third world countries today where there's little or no refrigeration, they're still using salt to preserve meat, to keep the stuff from going bad. And so when they hear him say, you're the salt of the earth, they would have understood immediately. They were a preserving influence in their society. Now, that's primary, it's foundational, it's fundamental. It's not all there is here, and we'll come back to it, though, because it's the most important thing that's here. A couple other things that salt does is salt is meant to create thirst. Now, anybody who has ever bought one of those little uh, air poppers for popcorn, you know, some of you, you go through the phase, you're like, I want to be healthier, I'll get the air popper. It's horrible. Why? Salt makes popcorn happen. I mean, you got to have it. Now, for some of you, you're like salt and butter. I pass on the butter, but I got to have the salt. And in fact, I remember when I played at Disneyland, and that was like a three-year stint for me years back. And, and uh, not only did they salt the popcorn heavily, but they had these blowers in the popcorn machines that blew the smell down Main Street. So you'd get in there, and you're like, man, I got to have some popcorn, you know? Long before you saw the machine, you were already thinking, got to have it. Your mouth was watering. But as soon as you have the popcorn, guess what? Now you got to have a soda. Why? Because salt makes you thirsty. It's the same thing you get pretzels or you get peanuts at the ball game. Salted heavily. Why? It's going to make you thirsty. They, they actually make up the money in the drinks. But that's, that's not what's important to our purposes. But, but just to say that there's a parallel there. And that our lives as believers in Jesus, as representatives of Jesus, are meant to cause people to thirst for him. It's wonderful to read through the Old Testament and read the Psalms and my soul thirst for you, the psalmist declares. And unbelievers should have a sense that, man, there's something you experience that I'm certainly not experiencing. And by the way, because we might miss the connection, in our last study, we looked at the Beatitudes and they concluded with, with three blessings on those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, reviled and all kinds of things said evil for you falsely for his sake. And, and then he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he immediately says, you are the salt of the earth. And here's what I'm thinking. That it's during times of trial and tribulation, of persecution, of accusation, when we have the greatest opportunity to be an influence on others. Because they're used to people getting back in their face. They're used to people saying, you're not going to treat me that way, or I'm going to pay you back, or I'm going to teach you a lesson. And when people see that you really aren't like them, and that's most easily recognized under times of stress or duress, well, that's when your witness becomes most effective. See, it's so easy to go around saying God's good when everything's good. But when everything falls apart, people take a closer look at you. Why? If you've professed faith in Christ publicly, people are watching your life. 
I heard someone say once, and I believe it to be true, that we may be the only Bible some people will ever read. And so they may not be reading the written word, but they're reading us. They're watching us. They want to know, what are you about? And what is this Jesus you claim has saved you and is transforming you and given you hope and peace and joy and love? Is all that real? And so we're to be a preserving influence in our society. We're we're to be about preservation, though it's just sort of natural if you're really walking with Jesus and growing in Jesus. It's not something you strive for or try to make happen. But we're to create thirst. And I think that one other aspect of salt is that it's supposed to add zest and zeal, flavor to life. Certainly is true physically. I don't know if you ever ate an egg with no salt or, you know, just fry up an egg and eat that thing. It's tasteless. But salt, not when you put salt on an egg, you don't just taste salty eggs. The, the, the flavor of the egg itself is enhanced. And, and that's really part of the picture here. That, that we're to have such an influence in our society that others are better for coming in contact with us. That, that others are encouraged because of their contact with us. Now, he says a couple things that are troubling as it relates to salt. He says, if the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? I didn't know salt could lose its flavor, so I decided to do some reading up on it. And what I found is some people think it can and some people think it can't. So I'm no no better off than before I read. But here's what I do know. That can't be Jesus' point if it's not something that we can be sure about or clear on. What he does say, if salt could lose its flavor or did lose its flavor, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What he's saying is we are either useful to him or useless for him. And he says, if we're the salt of the earth and we're not salty, then we're useless to him. Now, some read into this when he says thrown out and trampled under the foot of man. Well, that's you losing your salvation. Listen. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't teach us how to get saved or how to stay saved. And it doesn't teach us that if we're not living this way or doing that thing, then we're not going to be saved. That isn't even the purpose of it. So we we don't want to have those thoughts in our mind. We don't want to read into the text something that was never intended by the text. What Jesus is saying is our influence, our witness in the world is directly related to the fact that we are salty salt. And if... The salt loses its savor. Well, thrown out. Why? It's useless. You're not going to salt anything with salt that isn't salty. And so I was thinking, where do we have an illustration of this? Well, a couple of weeks back, we considered Lot in another context. We reconsider him today because he is the perfect illustration, tragically, sadly, of what it is to have your witness thrown out and trampled under the foot of man. Many of you familiar that God had blessed Abraham and Lot so much so that at one point Abraham says, we just have too much. God's given us flocks and herds and we, we just got to split up. We can't stay together. And knowing God had given him everything, Abraham said, take whatever you want. And his nephew looked toward the fertile plains of Sodom and he saw they were well watered like the Garden of Eden. So he says, that's what I want. That looks good to me. That will be perfect for me. And he moves toward Sodom. A little later in the story, he moves into Sodom. And when you finally find the angels coming down into Sodom for its destruction, Lot has moved up in Sodom. He's sitting at the gate of the city. It'd be like being on our city council. He was in government there. He'd become someone there. 
And here's the real tragedy and the, the real irony. The scripture says Lot was a righteous man, his spirit vexed by the things he saw and heard daily. God calls him a righteous man. That means he was right in the sight of God. Now, no one has inherent righteousness. That will be so clear next week as we look into um, the law and the prophets and true righteousness. That will be the subject of our next study together. Our righteousness has got to be imputed to us, imparted to us through faith in Christ Jesus because we have no, and if the word righteousness is foreign to you, it just means rightness. We're not right in the sight of God, not on our own. And there's nothing we can do on our own to be right in the sight of God. So God does what we can't do for ourselves. He imparts to us, imputes to us a righteousness, a rightness. He receives and accepts his gift to us. But he says, that's Lot. Now, I don't think most people in Sodom saw Lot as a righteous man. I believe that, that Lot, in many ways, had to be a compromised man living in the midst of a very perverse society. Now, I'm not saying he was as bad as everyone else. And we tend to think sort of like, well, I'm not as bad as everyone else. But that's not how God sees it. He just sees righteousness and unrighteousness. And that's what, you know, really matters in the end. Well, when it comes to having imputed or imparted righteousness, you got to know that when judgment comes, when wrath falls, you won't be subject to it. Lot escapes the destruction of Sodom because God had sealed him, because he had trusted in God, because God had a declaration and and knew that, hey, here's a righteous man. But before the destruction of Sodom, and many of you are familiar with the story, Abraham had entered into a negotiation with the Lord, and he said, hey, if there are 50 righteous in Sodom, wouldn't you spare the city for the sake of the 50 righteous? I mean, is it right to destroy the righteous with the wicked? Shouldn't the judge of the whole earth do right? And God's response, of course, is, hey, if there are 50 righteous, I'll spare the whole city for the sake of 50. Why? 50 righteous people could have a radical impact even on a place as far gone as Sodom. 50 righteous could make a difference. And then he says, "What? A, you know, I don't want to get on your nerves, a rough paraphrase, but very accurate to the intent of the passage. I don't want to get on your nerves. I don't want to put myself in a bad situation. But Lord... What if they're just five less? I mean, would you destroy the city for the lack of five? He says, I'll I'll spare the city for 45. And he gets them to 40 and all the way to 30 and 20 and all the way down to 10. And ultimately, you know who escapes the destruction of Sodom? One righteous man, his wife and his two daughters. But that's not the whole story. Because the angels, when they come into Sodom, and we don't have time for the whole story, you should read through it in Genesis if you haven't. When the angels come, they say, get those over whom you have influence. Get those who will listen to you and tell them, destruction's coming, it's time to go. Judgment's coming, we've got to escape the wrath that's coming. And he goes to his sons-in-law, or some of the translations suggest that they were simply betrothed to his daughters, and they would have been then, uh, you know, the fiancés. But he goes to these guys and he says, God's going to destroy the city. What was their response? They looked and said, they laughed. They mocked. They thought it was a joke. Why? There had to have been something about Lot's day-to-day experience, though internally he was grieved and, and not in agreement with the things going on, that caused them to look at him. And he says, listen, this is it. Destruction's coming. we got to get out. And they laughed in his face. And it is the most powerful illustration I can think of in Scripture of someone's witness being trampled and 
thrown out and trampled under the foot of man. That's what happened to him. The influence he could have had and should have had and, and was so, should have been so obvious in such a perverse, corrupt society, he failed to have. And so he escapes with his wife. He escapes with his daughters. It's worse than even that, though, because tragically, even having escaped that corruption, they carry with them so much of what Sodom was about. His own daughters later get him drunk and have incestuous relationships with him to produce offspring. Why? Because they think that, that everybody's destroyed and that, that he's the only, you know, guy around and that this is the only way to preserve the family line. And and it's that thing, you know, you can take the, the gal out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the gal. Well, he got the gals out of Sodom, but they had been so influenced by life in Sodom that they didn't see the the, the horror of sleeping with their own dad. And, and so a righteous man, I, I guess so because God says so, but I don't think anybody would have guessed it if God didn't say it. And I think that we got to be really careful about where we are and what we do and how we live and, and, and the compromises we make. Because if the salt loses its savor, oh, you'll still get to heaven as surely as Lot was pulled out of the destruction of Sodom. Oh, you'll make it. But your witness will be trampled underfoot. You'll lose the opportunity you have to be what God has left you here to be the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. Well, one last thing, and I probably shouldn't even share it. The passage is so serious. But many of you no doubt aware that as they're leaving Sodom, there was conversation. Someone has asked the question, what was the last thing that Lot ever said to his wife? Hey, is that somebody following us? Um, I know it's bad. I know it's bad. But, but if you're familiar with the story, she turns back, not because the question was asked, but the implication in the original language is that she turned back looking longingly and perhaps even moving back towards Sodom and was caught up in the, what was it, fire and brimstone that rained down from heaven. Now, you know if you've been here any time at all, I'm not much of a fire and brimstone kind of guy. I'm all about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. God has this wonderful plan. He doesn't want you to perish. But you need to know as real as heaven is, hell is real too. And, and as surely as he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, hey, we're in chapter 16 this Wednesday night in the book of Revelation, and there is wrath that pours forth from heaven that devastates the entire earth, directly paralleling what took place in small localities in the Old Testament. Man, it's the whole deal when you get to Revelation. And he tells us, flee the wrath to come. Come out from among them. Well, in any case... Preservation, that's what it's all about. And that's what he's left us here to be about. The, the second picture he gives us, as he says, you are the light of the world, has to do with illumination. Now, this is true in, in every generation. It's true wherever you go. People understand light and illumination. And it's all about light and darkness and, and a couple implications for us. Illumination provides direction. We could just say more simply, God's light provides direction. Your word, we read, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word tells me where I'm standing and tells me where to go, shows me where to go. But I already mentioned it. You may be the only Bible some people ever read. They're watching you to see, are you really standing on solid ground? 
And are you someone who can be followed? Are you an example that can lead them along to a better direction? And there are many Christians, sadly, again, that that don't get this part, all about getting saved and growing and, yes, having a better life in Jesus, but not recognizing that our lives are meant to impact, to affect the lives of those around us. And they're going to. You may be semi-salty or very salty or your salt may have lost its savor. But you are an influence on people and the kind of influence you'll be will be directly related to, well, how salty you are if that's our illustration or how bright you shine if that's our illustration. Now, there's something about the light you need to know as it would relate again to first century because when you read these things in the 21st century, without trying to get back in their shoes and understand their lives, you really miss some fundamental things. Light in those days was always passed from one person to another. You see, they didn't have candles as we know them, and they didn't have light bulbs, that's for sure. And so what they had was just some oil in a cup or a saucer or a lamp. And then they'd have a wick that just floated in it, and it would be lit. And you kept that thing going at all times. And you added oil to the thing regularly because you didn't want your light to go out. Why? If it went out, you had to go to your neighbor to get relit. Maybe they could have, you know, done the Boy Scout thing and got a flint going or something. But they didn't have matches. They didn't have clickers. They didn't have a way to light a fire. And so it was very important that you had light, that you had fire. And uh, you could only get lit by connecting with somebody who was on fire, who had light. And I think that's important to us in the 21st century because it's true today. While God could appear to people as he did to Moses, and it's interesting to note, how did he appear? Burning bush. You see, there was nobody to ignite Moses, so God set a bush on fire, then didn't consume it. So Moses would be drawn, so God could light Moses personally. And the picture he's given us is, hey, we are the light of the world, but that's only true if Jesus has lit you up, literally. And if he indwells you personally. So illumination, about light and darkness. It's about direction. The second thing it's about is protection. I don't know if you've ever camped out much or hiked much. Had a season, oh, many years ago where I went on a backpack trip. It was such an intense thing. It was one of these things where they try to break you down. Now, they didn't tell me that ahead of time. I think, you know, that not everything was totally represented in the brochures as it would be. In fact, I had this buddy with me that was complaining a lot. And the guy's like, hey, you know, what do you think it was going to be? I mean, didn't you look at the brochures? And he said, yeah, but I thought those guys with the backpacks were porters, you know. And uh, but anyway, long story short, we were out in the wilderness for days and, and with very little food and very little fuel. And at one point they took away all our sleeping bags and we had to cuddle up and huddle up and that's a gross thought you know and and uh, just to stay warm and stay alive we were up there at what's that place immigrant gap and i don't know if you know the history of that place but we did and we didn't want to follow in their footsteps so we were doing all we could to survive and it was a survival trip but when it gets dark up there on a night that it's cloudy it is absolutely black you can't see anything and there are cliffs so Unless you're a complete idiot, you don't go running around in the dark thinking, oh, this is way fun, you know. I wonder how close I am to the cliff. Um, maybe you do that. But I don't do that. When it gets dark, I sit down and wait for the light. And that's the place of safety, you see. And, and anybody who's thinking sanely knows it's not safe to run around in the dark, especially if there are cliffs nearby. And here's the picture. 
There's a world running around in the dark and they don't realize how serious it is and, and, and how scary it is and all the danger that's out there. But you know better. But God didn't help you know better just to protect and preserve you. No, you're, hey, if you go off the cliff, you're going to wake up in heaven. If you're fortunate enough to die from the fall, now you might wake up and be on the ground and alive. Now, that's scary. But anyway, that's another story all in and of itself. But, but the picture you got to get is, again, you know the danger and God's protecting you from it and giving you wisdom concerning it, but not all the world gets that. Salt and light. The incredible value of these things can be realized if you just think of life without them. You and I are called to bring the same kind of value to the world around us. Preservation and illumination are what we bring when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's a wonderful truth that our Lord makes it so our lives can mean so much to so many. Join us next time as we finish the study, Salt and Light. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.